Whatever country you're living in, perhaps like me, you're feeling that the divide between the us and the them is becoming sharper. The chasm between the sneeches with stars and the sneeches without stars. And if you're a Dr. Seuss fan, you'll know exactly what I mean. Well, that chasm seems to be getting wider and deeper and more treacherous. Now, I've got a question for you. And it doesn't matter what game you're playing and it doesn't matter what side you're on. Why are we so invested in the failure of half our society? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people share the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them and a book that has shaped them. My guest today, Indra Adnam, wrestles with that question, why are we so invested with the failure of half our society? Because she challenges the very way we do politics. She is an agent of change in the political space, and that means an agent of change in the wider world as well. And she's the author of a new book, the Politics of Waking Up. I really love that as a title. She lives in London, but she calls herself a global citizen, and with good reason. My family is split between uh, Indonesia and Holland. I came from an Indonesian Muslim family and a Dutch Catholic family. Uh, and to that extent, I've always uh, had quite a broad perspective of trying to bridge things or trying to um, understand the world through how do you bring its disparate, you know, disparate parts together. But it was Indra's early life that installed in her the truth about what it takes to build or destroy those bridges. My early life was very marked by uh, a number of really significant deaths. My brother died when I was 11 uh, in a car crash. My mother had six or seven uh, it's not six or seven, years, seven brothers and sisters who all died of cancer when I, while I was a teenager. And so very early on in my life, my big question was, um, where does my power lie? What, what kind of power do I have to control circumstances or control my life? Um, I had been a practicing Catholic until then, and I'd prayed to God fervently, you know, for the survival of my brother and failed. So my life quest, if you like, was to understand human agency. You know, who are we? What kind of control might we have over our lives? And, uh, uh, and you know, how can we develop that? And of course, that led me eventually to politics, um, which, which is where I'm now most active. How do you define power? It's a, it's a, it's literally a potent word, but its definitions are often quite slippery. When you say one thing, I may think of another thing. How do you talk about power? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, power, I think, in the public sphere is too often seen as force or coercion. You know, the mm. power to 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 make something happen. Um, maybe it's seen as power over others. Um, so a, coer a coercive physical force. I've come to believe in power more as something which is uh, agentic, that perhaps has more elements of attraction in it. You know, how do you develop your relationships with others so that through your relationships with others, you can see things change? So right. Joseph Nye once described this um, essentially as soft power. I feel it's more than how he described it, which was really to talk about how a country attracts, you know, tourists. Or, right. you know, how it has influence over international relations. I think of soft power really as the power of your story or the power mm. of the narrative, you know, that will change things for everyone that's included in that. 
Gosh, there's a lot there. Um, I'm curious to know, Indra, if if power and this kind of expanded idea of soft power is rooted in what's your story and what impact does your story has, what do you know now about telling stories? Yeah, I mean, really essentially, you know, Michael, it's that if we look at how um, the public space is ordered, for example, mm. um, and maybe take into account that most of the institutions that we're taking part in in some way or that govern us in some way were designed by men, you know, in, yeah. in, this, in past centuries. Um, what I've come to realize over this past 20 years or so is that um, the story of our powerlessness as citizens, as ordinary people, um, is maybe a very, is maybe a fake one. Right. You know, maybe it's something a little bit like, you know, the story of the elephant that was tethered at birth, you know, mm. to a small tree um, with, by, by, you know, a thin rope to one leg, you right. know, and as a, as a baby elephant really believed it couldn't move. Yeah. But because of that, you know, because that, that, that they continued to be tied to the tree, no matter how large it grew, yes. you know, he always believed he only had that amount of power. Right. That's the that's the point of the story. You know, if yeah. that's the story in your head that you're powerless and that we as citizens are powerless against the greater forces and that we need only a certain kind of person to gov to govern us to tell us what to do, then that yeah. is a story that changes everything. How do you help people change this story? Because you know that that um the the fable of the elephant tethered to the tree and, you know, you just believe that these are the rules now. You can't escape the tree. You know, on both sides of hard power, if you like, you know, one side is where people like I stand, which is like I'm a straight, white, overeducated man, and I, I have access to power. I feel like I do. Um, and I have a story about that's my right. And on the other side are people who feel have stories around powerlessness, I'm curious to know how you help people change stories on both sides of that conversation. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's a, a sort of um, a waking up process, right? right. So, you know, s suddenly real at some point realizing that the power you think you have maybe hasn't created the outcomes that you hope they would. Right. You know, so right now, for example, despite the fact that you have a vote, you live in a democracy, every mm -hmm. five years or four years, you get to choose a party. How is it then if it was, uh, if, if that was a good system of power, how is it that we're facing the crisis that we are? Right. Where environmentally, we're about to go over the cliff, yeah. you know, as a global, as a, as a global civilization. You know, how is it that there's so much inequality uh, and poverty in this world? How is it that there's so many, such a huge prevalence of mental health problems everywhere in the world yeah. that believes it has power and democracy? You know, we're, we're living in quite a toxic reality for mm. ourselves, let alone the people that we might describe as underprivileged or less privileged than us, you know, yes. who are at the receiving end, the, the sharper end maybe of the kind of power that we've been experiencing. So I would say question, question. And for, uh, for me, it was the, the, the strongest wake-up moment 
was the point of Brexit, um, um, mm. which also coincided with the Trump, um, the you know the Trump election in the USA, where I saw huge amounts of people being persuaded that there was a division in our country that was so sharp that on a referendum we come out just about at 50-50. Right. You know, here's a simple question, but somehow we managed to come out at 50-50. You know, and this happens again and again. What is manipulating us? What is what is what is having this influence upon us that we can be so smartly divided against each mm. other? And what is the effect of that division? You know, surely if we are so divided against each other, it's inevitable that we as ordinary citizens will feel powerless. We're yeah. always against. We're invested in the failure of half of our own country. <laughs> it's an incredible reality yeah. we find ourselves in. I'm, I'm just not sure whether to find hope or despair in, in a comment like that, Indra, because there's part of me that thinks, look, we're, we are, we are well-educated people, or at least we, we, we have the possibility, the potential to be well-educated people. And yet we are manipulated our social media bubbles amplify our beliefs so that division feels stronger rather than weaker. Um, where do you find hope in all of this rather than just kind of <laughs> burying your head in a, something and despairing and throwing up your hands in the air and going, it's too much? <laughs> well, you know, well, let's go back to the storytelling part of this. Yes. You know, so... In, in effect, in the UK and across Europe, in fact, I'm not sure about Australia, uh, in the US, quite similar, only 2% of people are members of political right. parties, right? So if you consider that, um, it, it's not really an issue of, you know, does that mean 98% of people are apathetic about politics? That's not really what I'm pointing at. What I'm pointing at is that 2% of the discourse, uh, you know, is fed upon by the media. So most of us are really reading about an idea of power that comes from only 2% of people who have right. a certain attitude and a certain way of looking at the rest of us. So, um, you know, what I, what I committed to doing was looking outside of that bubble, looking outside of the 2% media discourse yeah. and looking uh, at the 98% and thinking, you know, what is happening out there that we're not reading about? And in fact, right. over this last five years, which is, you know, which has been the work of the Daily Alternative, the alternative political platform right. that I now run, um, is to show me incredible amounts of ingenuity, innovation, connectedness. There's so much yeah. uprising, in fact, that shows me a clear direction of hope around uh, civilizational evolution. But I'm not reading about that in the mainstream newspapers. And that, for me, is is the shift that is possible, um, right. you know, at this moment, um, for all of us to recognise that actually, in fact, for the last twenty years, we've been in a revolution of yeah. interconnectedness and information and availability and mobilising, um, and that the fruits of this, you know, we need to give them more attention. We need to. Uh, you know, develop new media systems that carry the, the, the better news, the good news about yeah, yeah. the development of human agency. And then you actually have a clear direction of hope. Um, but you need to be patient with it. You, ne you need yeah. to know that these at the moment are, are, are small, um, what I call fractals, 
you know, yes. perfect tiny systems appearing all over the globe um, of communities. I call them cosmo-local communities because they're definitely locally um, connected, locally and globally connected. Right. Um, so that, in fact, a more, you know, internet-led, I would say, global set of resources is appearing in localities now. So none right. of us are, it's not small, flat communities we're talking about. We're talking about rich ecologies of of agency appearing at local level that are now appearing in the UK or across Australasia. They're in India, they're in Africa, they're in Europe. Um, it's just a task, really, of getting them to see each other and working better together. That's, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that it's possible. You know, I mean, I, I subscribe, so I, I see some of those stories as well. And um, they are inspiring. They they they're typically basically local awesomeness, <laughs> you know. There's kind of <laughs> ecologies evolving and changing. And I wonder about scale and reach, and whether there'll always be a kind of undercurrent of cool stuff happening that keeps bumping against the kind of bigger systems that seem pretty content in homeostasis and things not changing. Is, is there a way that things like this can really disrupt a, a bigger system or is it perpetually a kind of cool things happening around the edges? I would say there is a way and um, technology will play a large part in that. Yeah. Um, you know, in the past, if you're looking back through the decades, as, you, as you're right to say, there's always been an interesting fringe. You know, yeah. there've always been the, the the outliers and the people that are kind of entertain us with their hopeful, you know, and uh, indefatigability, right? It's a great word. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm sure you know it. I certainly do. But the technology now is quite different. You know, yeah. now we have the possibility of connecting people. Let's just take this COVID period we've just been through. Yeah. Right. So we're all forced into our homes and logic would have it that that means we're so disconnected now and we're going to become antisocial and almost society, you know, is at threat from the fact that we are now alienated and isolated in our own homes. Is that really the case? No. Right. You know, the phenomenon is, is that for the first time using almost entirely, you know, a Zoom platform, sorry to advertise, <laughs> people came together ex in extraordinary ways. Right. You know, there were people, um, you know, not only having discussions, let's say the mutual aid groups that sprang up in neighborhoods, you know, yes. able to talk to each other, discuss, you know, pithy problems about how to deliver food to people who couldn't get out of their houses anymore. Right. But also beginning to think and question the big issues. Why are we in this situation? Mm. You know, this was happening at neighborhood level. It was also happening at global level. You know, I found myself right. over the course of this year in conversations with people in South Africa and in India, in the Middle East, you know, who are doing similar responses. And they're having quite similar feelings about who am I? What is this? How does this yeah. connect to the bigger picture? And the, the weird thing about well, even you and I talking now, you know, we're having an intimate conversation here. You know, right. we're, we're right. not having some cold, it's not, we're not ticking boxes. No. You know, we're thinking through things together. And yeah. this is a very new phenomenon that has been accelerated over this past year. Yeah. Indra, your new book is called um, The Politics of Waking Up. What do you mean by waking up? It, it means many things to many people. Um, 
but I'm 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 referring specifically to you know the last twenty years, where we moved, you know, radically from having a source of information that was almost entirely from above us. So we would we mm-hmm. would hear things from. Uh, you know, in a in a hierarchical way, from governments down, trickling down to us, yes. living in our communities, or from a library through a book, or you know, from our tutors. That's how information came to us. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, in in a very short period of time, uh, information became accessible to us. You know, mm. in in myriad forms, we could go and dig into other people's lives or read about other people's professions or hear about other people's perspectives. Suddenly. Um, that to me was a, is, is a waking up moment. And not simply because we're getting more information, but in the process of that, we're able to make massive amounts of connections to people we barely know and right. hear their stories, right? So Facebook was a, was a game changer, obviously, but so was Google and Wikipedia yeah. and you know, Instagram, all of these. The other aspect of it, you know, Michael, that's so important, is that we saw ourselves performing in a sort of public sphere in a way we've never done before so we're not only watching others behaving we're also Mm. watching ourselves and we see ourselves uh as you know as 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 entities in this political dynamics that are being played out all over it's a new public space and we're in it right even people you know boringly taking selfies you know or telling stories (laughs) about their pets in a way it's them saying i'm here I'm right. in the public space. You can comment on me. This is my performance. You know, so this is, I don't think we can, you know, history will tell it as, a, as, a, as an extreme form of suddenly waking up to the reality of things and reality right. of ourselves. At the same time, through this process, people suddenly beginning to see where do I stand in this field, you know? Mm. So the the woke aspect of it, you know, is groups suddenly finding each other who share a new awareness right. of how do I get, how did I get to be in this place I am? Why do I feel so disadvantaged? Ah, right, right now I'm beginning to get it. And there's another hundred people who get it the way I get it. And suddenly right. there's this, this, these spikes, I call them spikes of wokeness that are trying mm-hmm. to disrupt the whole field. But in fact, everyone is waking up. It's very uneven at the moment. And so there's a lot of reaction. You know, there's a lot of, uh, as you say, Mm -hmm. disruption. If you can find more people like you, then you will be able to do more, have more of an impact on this public space. It's very uneven. And and, and it's a painful, uh, chaotic space right now. And one of the things that I worry about is that, you know, my politics are... uh, uh, veer to the left, and I get excited about alternative groups, you know, arising and connecting and finding ways of speaking truth to power and disrupting old forms of power. You know, that that's my politics, and that's how I I like to think. And everything that that offers that alternative political world is offered to the more conservative, the more right wing, the more nationalistic. Um, I'm wondering, I'm not even sure what my question is, Indra, other than to say it, it, if it can happen to the side of the politics that I nod and agree with, it can happen and be a for a force on the other side of politics as well. The other force of politics, how do we 
worry about that, counter that, think about that, if if at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not entirely clear, Michael, if you've ever had a spiritual experience of of life, um, which kind of unifies the you know right. everything, and you right. and you know it's more you're more inclined to think of these two phenomenon as you know two parts of of a political field you know right. and then ask yourself what is the difference between them um and uh how can we really be truly for the people if we are saying only half the people you know are right. we truly for all of us if we are discounting yeah. half of us um right. actually this is a very good lead into the piece of the will it's of the perfect book. I'm, 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 I'm going it is to a read. perfect segue yeah. yeah so so tell tell us about the book that you've chosen okay so um it's called a theory of everything and here we are <laughs> a bold title <laughs> a nice small you know mo modest title as you said you exactly. know uh, by and by um in, in a philosopher called ken wilbur there he is i forgot mm -hmm. the name of the bottom um, and just to give you a bit of a run up to it, um, I think I described Please. to you how I'd had, you know, such uh, life altering challenges right. when I was young and how, in fact, in my teens and early 20s, I was sort of making up my own belief system because I'd, I'd, I'd dropped um, yeah. Christianity, you know, and with a sort of uh, raising, you know, raging at, the, at God for letting me down um, yeah. in, a in a childlike way, I would say. Um, but I was sort of making up my own belief system. But uh, then I visited my home country, Indonesia, and I became a Buddhist. I realized mm. that all the things I was trying to put together as pieces of a puzzle were, in fact, Buddhism. Um, and so I, I was part of a global Buddhist movement called the Movement for Culture, Education and Peace for a good 15 years. Um, and in that time, I had a, a whale of a time actually developing ideas of human agency coming from the inside. It's like, who are mm -hmm. you? How do you develop your own power? As mm. and this is a Buddhist sort of idea of growth. And um, but I was beginning to sense that outside this Buddhist bubble, you know, there was something else that I wasn't really taking into account. And that's the world where politics had you know, reigned over the public space. Yeah. You know, how does my Buddhism relate to my politics? I couldn't actually make sense of it. Uh, and I went to do my master's degree in politics uh, quite late, you know, in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, and found a lot of language I couldn't, I could not integrate into my own language. So I, I then started to live in these two worlds, my Buddhist world, my political world. Right. And that's when I came across uh, Ken Wilber for the first time. Literally, yeah. somebody who was listening to my musings uh, in some, <laughs> you know, in some think tanky sort, sort of, of event. Connected you know, yeah. Yes, said, uh, I think you should be reading Ken Wilbur. Um, and so I took this book with me on holiday. I remember thinking, I'll never read this book on holiday. Right. But in fact, I ended up reading it on the beach. I couldn't put it down um, <laughs> because it sort of made sense of everything. Yeah. Um, it pulled very, very um, disparate things together into what I call a four-quadrant model. Um, That's right. So the four-quadrant model, if you remember, I think you've known Ken Wilber in the past. A little, yeah. It says, yeah, it says that everything, every phenomenon can be seen through the lens of these four quadrants. So the upper quadrant is everything to do with the individual and the lower quadrant, two quadrants, are everything to do with the public space. 
So right. there's a relationship between the individual and the public space. And then the left part of the four quadrants is the internal aspect of that. Mm -hmm. And the right is the external aspect of it. So right. you have these four different quadrants. I'm, I'm saying this because that's what's described in the book before I read the, the, the two Perfect. pages, right? Um, so what Ken Mulber is saying is there's a relationship between our individual internal capacities um, yes. and the actions that we take, right? So one right. is related to the other. So it's because of our internal capacities that we take right. these actions. Right. So and the actions internal, that we internal take. is consciousness, external is yeah. behavior in terms of that individualistic yes. level. Yeah. 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 And at the public space level, at the collective level, let's say the internal is culture. Right. You know, what are our, what are our values? You know, that, yeah. that, that, that what are, what are prevalent. We? Yeah. 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 And on the right hand side is the structure. You know, right. given Systems. these values, yeah. what have we what have we created? So our politics, obviously, really, you can see it most clearly in the bottom right hand there. You know, right? Yeah. So when you can pull these things together, and you have mm. a sense that as you develop, it develops, right? So the way you're looking at the world is to do with how you're developing your internal self. And the right. behavior that you do and within the structure and within the culture so there's a sort of you know there's a way of looking at, as everything is interconnected but you can't miss out any of the bits because if you're ignoring the culture you don't understand right. the impact it's having on you as an individual if you're ignoring right. the structure you don't see how it prohibits certain kinds of actions you have to look at them all right, right. so it's like a it's like a four-sided mobius strip it's all the same thing and it's all different at the same time or something. Exactly. No, no, exactly that. Exactly that. And it really causes you to check yourself. You know, yeah. when you think you have a really clear opinion on something, you mm. ask yourself, where, where, where might I be now, you know, on the quadrant right. and what sort of, will cause some stages of d development, you know, right. which, which is tricky, you know, that's the tricky part, because it looks like a hierarchy or a ladder, but actually, it's about yourself mm. constantly evolving, right. you know, and can I get any further, you know, is there an opportunity to look at all of this by yeah. by growing myself, in fact. And how did you come to choose two pages? Because, you know, Wilbur's work is very dense, provocative he's a philosopher so it's a philosophical tome that you're reading from how did you come mm. to pick two pages for us well on the on the opening page it says uh, a theory of everything an integral vision for business politics science and spirituality right. uh, nice one ken um so i just <laughs> went to the chapter that talked about politics i mean Perfect. literally you know i thought okay give me the politics and um Interestingly, um, it's chapter five, and politics comes under a title that's called The Real World, right? So suddenly the real world. Um, and I think that's, for me, you, you know, that's, that's helpful because mm -hmm. there is a world of imagination, a world of story. There's a world of, you know, feeling, affect, you know, how, how we experience yes. things. And the real world is sort of you know, how it appears perhaps in a more materialistic way, you know, and that's yeah. how people, that, that's our shared language mostly, isn't it? And part of what I'm already excited to hear is that, you know, 
one of the points of resistance to the work that you might be talking about is people go, yeah, but that's not connected to the real world. And you're like, no, let me show you how it's connected to the real world. So Indra, let mm. me let me introduce you formally as, as you read this. Um, Indra Adnan, author of the new book, The Politics of Waking Up, is reading from Ken Wilber's philosophical tome, A Theory of Everything. In the last chapter of Up From Eden, I made the observation that when it comes to the cause of human suffering, liberals tend to believe in exterior causes, whereas conservatives tend to believe in interior causes. That is, if an individual is suffering, the typical liberal tends to blame external social institutions. If you are poor, it's because you are oppressed by society whereas the typical conservative attempts to blame internal factors. You are poor because you are lazy. Thus, the liberal recommends exterior social interventions, redistribute the wealth, change social institutions so that they can produce fairer outcomes, evenly slice the economic pie, aim for equality among all. The typical conservative recommends that we instill family values demand that individuals assume more responsibility for themselves, tighten up slack moral standards, often by embracing traditional religious values, encourage a work ethic, reward achievement, and so on. In other words, the typical liberal believes mostly in right-hand causation. This is according to the integral uh, four-quadrant model. The typical conservative believes mostly in left-hand causation. Don't let the terminology of the quadrants confuse you. The political left believes in right-hand causation. The political right believes in left-hand causation. Had I been thinking of political theory when I arranged the quadrants, I would probably have aligned them to match. The important point is that the first step towards an integral politics that unites the best of liberal and conservative is to recognize that both the interior quadrants and the exterior quadrants are equally real and important. We consequently must address both interior factors, values, meaning, morals, the development of consciousness, and exterior factors, economic conditions, material well-being, technological advance, social safety net, environment. In short, a truly integral politics would emphasize both interior development and exterior development. Let us therefore focus for a moment on the area of interior consciousness development. This is, after all, the hardest part for liberals to accept because the discussion of stages or levels of anything, including consciousness, is deeply antagonistic to most liberals who believe that all such judgments are racist, sexist, marginalizing, and so on. The typical liberal, and I am one, recall, does not believe in interior causation or sometimes even in interiors for that matter. The typical liberal epistemology, e.g. John Locke, imagines that the mind is a tabula rasa, a blank slate that is filled with pictures of the external world. If something is wrong with the interior, if you are suffering, it is because something is first wrong with the exterior, the social institutions, because your interior 
comes from the exterior. But what if the interior has its own stages of growth and development and is not simply imported from the external world? If a genuinely integral politics depends upon including both interior development and exterior development, then it would behoove us to look carefully at these interior stages of consciousness unfolding. In books such as Integral Psychology, I've correlated over 100 developmental models of consciousness, West and East, ancient and modern, which help to give us very solid picture of the stages of development of the subjective realm, not as a rigid series of unalterable levels, but as a general guide to the possible waves of consciousness unfolding. If the first step towards an integral politics is to combine the interior and the exterior, the left hand and the right hand, the subjective and the objective, the second step is to understand that there are stages of the subjective, stages that is of consciousness evolution. To help elucidate these stages, we can use any of the more reputable maps of interior development, such as those of Jane Lovinger, Robert Kagan, Claire Graves, William Torbert, Suzanne Reuter, or Beck and Cowan's Spiral Dynamics. For this simplified overview, I will use just three broad stages. Pre-conventional, which is egocentric, conventional, which is sociocentric, and post-conventional, which is world-centric. The traditional conservative ideology is rooted in a conventional, mythic membership, sociocentric wave of development. Its values tend to be grounded in a mythic religious orientation, such as the Bible. It usually emphasizes family values and patriotism. It is strongly sociocentric and therefore often ethnocentric, with roots as well in aristocratic and hierarchical social values and a tendency towards patriarchy and militarism. This type of mythic membership and civic virtue dominated cultural consciousness from approximately 1000 BCE to the Enlightenment in the West, whereupon a fundamentally new average mode of consciousness, the rational egoic, brackets, post-conventional, world-centric, orange meme, emerged on an influential scale, bringing with it a new mode of politics, ideologically, namely liberalism. I think I'm going to stop there because I can see right. that that was about two pages, uh, just That's great. Um, under. And uh, I, I mean, I, I secretly want you to keep reading for about another hour and a half <laughs> because you read beautifully <laughs> and it's helping me understand his, his uh, points of view. And it's so interesting to notice in myself who would identify as a liberal, my bias towards a focus on external uh, irregularities and like, how do I change the system? And at the same time, you know, I, part of my work is in the world of self-development and self-growth and, and the like, but I will downplay that in order to have my bias towards it's the system that needs to change. Um, so resonant for me to understand my bias in, in hearing that. What, what about these pages in particular struck a chord for you, Indra? Well, I, first of all, you know, one's always awed, you know, by Wilbur's um, ability to, you know, to really integrate so many different um, <laughs> I know. 
schools of thought. So he's not, he hasn't just come up with this as an idea of his own. It's not like, oh, I think. (laughs) Um, It's that he's read so First of all, I just whipped together a hundred psychological models and put that into thing and then do a hundred models on society and then a hundred models on system thinking and and kind of put them all into a book. Exactly, and that was just his first one, right? And you know, right. he's written scores of books since then. He's the most prolific um, and incredibly integrated mind. Um, so, so something awesome, you know. First of all, pulled pull me towards it, but just that there was a logic, really, yeah. that um, you, you know, this spoke specifically, you know, to to my family, for example. You know, I I live in a family where my sisters vote differently from me. How on earth did that happen? You know, know, we we grew up in the same circumstances. Um, And I was pulled more towards, you know, uh, uh, a progressive left thinking way of being, mostly because, you know, early, early on, I became interested in power. You know, I, I I was thinking consciously about agency, whereas my my sisters were more inclined to vote. Um, without thinking much about politics at all, more inclined to vote for a conservative candidate because they were more concerned with, uh, you know, hard work and, uh, you know, uh, people doing the best they can with what they've got, you know, and thinking that that is a system of fairness, you know, and and sort of meritocracy arises from effort. Mm -hmm. So I, I was just, you know, very impressed by the way that he could explain that away so easily. You know yes. that there was an emphasis towards the outside or towards the inside that has been exploited by a political system that thrives actually on opposition. So right. it's not politics itself which is toxic. It is the party political system, you know, which has structured our differences to become oppositional. You know, mm. so it's, it's you know even internally, if you think to if you think about it, you delve into it a little bit like you. We're beginning, we were beginning to do just then is that we're almost divided internally our external self is divided against our internal self almost I have right. this inclination when I think this but I have that inclination when I think that right. and Brexit and Trump and other things were a masterful at exploiting those differences you know yeah. and creating in effect a kind of chaos amongst the people um, that leaves them dependent on the hierarchy to sort the mess out, you know, and and the media is very complicit in this, not knowingly necessarily. I'm not accusing them of being, you know, malicious, right. but they play into this idea of where's all the energy? You know, the energy right. is in the opposition. Is it calling people out, knowing who the enemy is? You know, mm-hmm. that's where the energy comes from, and that's the business model. That's what sells newspapers. So now yeah. we are living in that in that world, you know, where our confusion is, you know, turns us against ourselves and against each other and leaves us dependent on a hierarchy of a power, which is clearly is so disconnected from real people's needs and their real resources, yeah. you know, so that uh, we are, we've become just pieces of a machine, you know, to fit into the, into the growth economy <laughs> that's dis- yeah. that is destroying our planet. Yeah. Indra, you know, as I think about your comment in particular about you know the the the, the way we're manipulated to form sides, and um, you know hearing Wilbur's work helps me understand that. But just from the little I understand about neuroscience, there's I think there's one part of my just my primitive brain that goes, look, 
you know, I like my tribe. You know, I've got the um, Dunbar's number, which is like 150 people is about it. And I can cope with that and everybody else is other to me. Is there a way that this sense of division just is a fundamentally biological thing? And this idea of integration, both at an individual level, but also at a more collective level, just remains fantasies that you and I dream about. Every question you ask, Michael, opens up this world of possible responses, right? <laughs> but but, but le le let me try and take them as simply as I can. I think Please. there's a lot of truth in what you say. You know, yeah. we're born into... Uh, you know, the human condition is dual, isn't it? We, we, we mm. look at everything as dualistic. So night, day, you know, yeah. near, far, short, long, black, white, you know, that's how we've met, that's how we've arranged it, right? But the question is, what, are, what can we do as human beings? Uh, and, and what is our inclination as human beings to bridge the divides, right? right. So I think, I think I would make the claim that it's a specifically a feminine attribute to always be trying to bring things together, mm. to you know create family where there is you know dis disparate um, you know islands of 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 of, of experience, you know to um, to build networks you know in the community so that your child can grow up safely, you know it's right. an inclination right, and the inclination to bring people together. Um, will always uh, be, you know, be, be a movement towards, um, towards integration, but always meet on the road, you know, endless um, distinctions of, yes. that are dual, right? So even as you're yeah. bringing things together, you're making distinctions all the time. So I, I think you're right that there is always this dualistic aspect, but I think it, I, I would say this also, alongside that, this constant uh, desire and inclination to bring things together. So there's the both. And one could be a more yang sort of masculine energy. One could be a more yeah. female energy. I would say because of the history of our public space, there's not enough of the female energy present mm -hmm. in our political design. So um, particularly bad in the UK, we have a first past the post system where winner takes mm. all, right, with yeah. every election. Um, there isn't any room for proportionality. But I would say even right. in community building, for example, you know, there's the people who were always trying to hive off and find their own little group within the bigger group. And there's the people always trying to bring us together, make sure yeah. that we're moving coherently forward uh, without anyone getting left behind. Both of those things are there. Indra, we're, we're almost done. There's a bad... There's a <laughs> we, have, we have seriously only just started scratching the surface. Um, Maybe I can ask you this: um, Is there is there a force of change that you've noticed a, a particular story that you've got excited about recently that you're like that that's a that's a cool thing to notice to see that it's 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 blooming and thriving and and flourishing somewhere that you could share with us? I feel like we should end on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. Th I in, in, in a way, there's too many, and I think I described to you that we, you know, at the Daily Alternative, we're 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 producing right. a blog a day, you know, on yeah. on 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 innovations that we see happening. Um, hard to choose one, but may, may, maybe best to focus on the phenomenon of people coming together at a community level, 
mm. um, and that how spontaneous that is, uh, and how it's been growing. So um, let me let me describe to you a movement called neighborocracy in India. Beautiful. Where um, when I was looking for, you know, just had my antenna up about you know how people are coming together at neighborhood level. Um, I found this movement called neighborocracy, where um, groups of 12 households are coming together. Um, no, excuse me. In most cases, they're groups of 20 households coming okay. together in parts of India, including uh, in what we would describe here as the slums of India, yeah. um, where each household has taken upon themselves to represent one of the uh, sustainability goals of the United Nations. Now, that sounds Ooh. crazy, but it's true. So one household has taken on um, being uh, responsible for the poverty in, in their neighborhood. Another one has right. become responsible for the environmental conditions in their neighborhood. And they come together as small parliaments regularly. Oh, that's great. Um, and within that, right, this, this is even more beautiful, there's a children's parliament there's a midterm right. parliament and there's an adults parliament. So in each of these groups, there are three levels of parliament where mm. they're all describing the SDGs, the United Nations Social Development, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Now you think, what a what a lovely idea, you know? How amazing! <laughs> you know, you get kids talking about how they would improve the poverty in their area, yeah. and adults also. What is really extraordinary is that these exist. There's, there's um, a thousand of them, and they exist all the way up to the national level. And yeah. there is in India um, a, um, a, ch a children's parliament prime minister, right? right. <laughs> and she, 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 she gets media attention. She speaks for, right. on behalf of the children of India um, yeah. around how to move India towards the social development goals, which, as you probably know right now, is not the main way that the political establishment has been going, right? No. So it's in, it's, in, it's in contrast to, and it's a challenge to, the mainstream politics mm. of India. So, and this is, this is not alone. These neighborhood parliaments are appearing all over the world um, in this really complex way because people are so informed, you know, with a mobile phone. That's almost yeah. as much as they need. So I hope that's enough of a story for that's you. That's a great Michael. story. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. wonderful. Um, yeah. The final question I'd love to, it's a, it's a broad one, so you can take it however you wish, which is, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? You know, usually I can spring right to that answer. <laughs> but I'll be I'll be honest. You know, I, this has been a great conversation, Michael. I think you've you know you've asked a lot of the right questions. Fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, what what I do what I what I would invite everyone to to do um, when they think about politics and they think about power is instead of really thinking about um, how to fix the problems, to really enter into that space of what do I imagine the future could be? Mm. And then to own that piece of your imagination, own your imagination for the future and share that story of what you're right. dreaming of with others. And that is the real source of a new politics uh, that, is, that would be fitting for this era of us all waking up. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. 
I know, I know that's the title, well, some of the title of Indra's book, but it's, it's really what I'm taking from this interview. It's what I'm trying to get shaken into me to try and really get it to land. I mean, it's so interesting, the bridge that got built in this conversation from a book of philosophy and, and you know, it's, Wilbur is not an easy read, but building that out to a philosophy of activism, a way of showing up and doing things in the world. And, you know, I think with Wilbur's insistence on connecting to the world, that makes that call to activism so real. You know, in that model that uh, Indra shared, you know, the very unmodestly named all quadrants, all levels, and so the all-encompassing model of the universe, I find it so tempting to keep retreating to that top left-hand quadrant. That's the individual interior one. It's the self-help quadrant. You know, it's about me and it's about my development and it's about my values and it's about my psychology and it's about my growth. And that's just not enough. That's just not enough anymore. And nor is it enough to claim your side, the right or the left, and then claim some moral righteousness that goes with that. I think part of what's so brilliant about Wilbur's work and Indra's work that is influenced by that is it's encompassing. It's taking it all in and trying to figure it all out. Now, there is no easy answer here, obviously, but I'm going to say yes to Indra's invitation at the end of our conversation, which was to start dreaming of the future with others. It's the dreaming and it's the future and it's the others all of that that makes it such a powerful invitation and i hope you'll take that up as well if you're interested in learning more about indra there's her new book out of course um you'll find her uh personal website at indraadnan.global that's i-n-d-r-a-a-d-n-a-n.global and then her political work and this is a newsletter i subscribe to is thealternative.org UK. And it's an inspiring uh, website and newsletter, hearing stories of activism and change and well, really of people dreaming of the future with others. And of course, I want to say thank you to you for listening to the podcast, listening the whole way through. Um, if you're loving it, do join the free community. It's the Duke Humphreys, named after one of the cool libraries at Oxford University, the library where all the good stuff was kept. And we have good stuff as well. We have transcripts. We have um, uh, additional interviews that haven't been released. We have some goodies that you can download. Uh, it's totally free to join. We'd love to have you there if you're up for the game. And of course, the podcast grows by word of mouth and by people looking at reviews. So if you wanted to mention this episode about bigger picture of society and activism and politics and going beyond what's comfortable for you, then I'd appreciate that for sure. And of course, uh, a rating on your podcast app is always deeply appreciated. I'm MBS and you're awesome and you're doing great.